The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those familiar, although I hope not comforting words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. This week, we're returning to the courts and the sort of controversy surrounding the Supreme Court in particular, because it is a very big topic and it's a, you know, it's already had a huge impact on things like abortion rights, but it's it's going to have be more and more important. And it's sort of, there's a sort of slow moving, rolling crisis about the legitimacy of the court and how to deal with it. And it has many facets, one of which is the question of the public's trust in the courts and good reasons why people might not trust the courts. There's sort of like, you know, ongoing conflict of interest revelations about justices like Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. And to talk about all this, I'm very happy to have on a very frequent guest, Moira Donegan, who has talked to us before on these issues. And I'm always happy to have on because she brings a very sort of, you know, like sharp analytical and I would say fearless mind to talking about this. So, so once again, Myra, th- thanks for being here. And yeah, maybe we can, we can just start like, you know, like just rehearse, you know, why, well, what are the, what's the legitimacy crisis of the courts? What's that all about? <laughs> well, thank you, Jeet. It's great to be back. So I think the crisis of the court sort of like comes up into like acute or like immediate consciousness and then sort of recedes back and forth through the news cycle, sort of like the tides, you know, it'll crash and then it'll fall back. And a few months ago, there was a crisis around Samuel Alito, who it was alleged had, you know, very close ties to a wealthy couple involved in sort of conser- the conservative legal movement and had possibly leaked the outcome of the Hobby Lobby decision to them before it's released to the public, which then in turn raised questions about the potential leaker of the Dobbs decision almost a year, actually exactly a year ago today as we're recording. That reporting led to a series of revelations about a right-wing legal organization that had very deep ties to the court, particularly through the Supreme Court Historical Society. They had sort of like made large, large donations to this nominally non-political, like basically museum in associated with the Supreme Court and had used those donations to purchase access to the justices and a building across the street from one first street. And you know, that story was very acute for a couple weeks. And then it sort of receded from view. And more recently, there has been over the past couple weeks, the sort of surge in revelations about potential conflicts of interest on the court. So recently it was revealed that John Roberts' wife made something like $10 million acting as essentially a headhunter for law firms that brought cases before the court and that that sort of potential conflict had not been disclosed properly. Before that, it was revealed that Justice Neil Gorsuch had owned a one-third stake in this like large, they call it a cabin. It sounds like it was actually a mansion in Colorado, in rural Colorado, that he had been trying to sell for two years. And with remarkable convenience, he sold it nine days after his confirmation to the court to the CEO of a group called Greenberg Toreg law firm that has since brought 22 cases before the court, none of which Gorsuch has recused himself from. And then sort of the big elephant in the room has been reporting on Clarence Thomas, who 
it was revealed through reporting from ProPublica, has been in a long-term relationship with a conservative mega donor named with the you know the villainous bond name Harlan Crow, who has been lavishing Thomas and his wife Ginny with really extraordinarily generous trips, you know, tours around the world on something called a super yacht, private jet flights back and forth from Crow's estate in Texas to Thomas's home in DC and apparently also to an engagement that Thomas had in New Haven. It's just really over the top opulence that Harlan Crow is paying for the the Thomases to live in and you know Harlan Crow and Thomas have each characterized their relationship as a friendship. They met on the right wing speaker circuit. By all accounts they do seem to have a degree of like mutual affection. But also, you know, when Harlan Crow was asked if there, if, you know, he had gotten anything in return for his, you know, exceptional largesse towards the Thomases, he really didn't say no. He goes, well, you know, all relationships have a degree of reciprocity, even the relationship between a mother and an infant, the infant gives something back to the mother. And I, I take it that Clarence Thomas is the baby in this scenario and Harlan Crow is the mom. But, you know, it's a it's a tremendously bad look, right? Like it yes. really looks yes. like, like if you have enough money, it is trivially easy to mm-hmm. buy access to Supreme Court justices. And there is, if not a fact of corruption, a really disturbing appearance of corruption on the yeah. court. Well, one way I kind of think about it is, I mean, I think already, you know, there's reason to be suspicious of the courts. And historically, I think people on the left have been suspicious of the courts because this is an institution that is like less beholden to sort of popular control and even just sort of popular access. Because, you know, like the courts are, you know, people who are like very highly trained in the sort of you know arcane knowledge. And so they're of the law. And, you know, and more and more in recent years, you know, go to elite universities and so are sort of socialized within this, you know, very narrow spectrum of American society that one finds in, you know, places like Yale, Harvard or Princeton. So already it's like skews towards the elite just in terms of social formation, right? In terms of the types of people who go there. And then if you add on to the fact that not only, you know, are are the justices in the courts formed that way, but they're also like, you know, freely cavorting with like, you know, the wealthiest members of that, you know, elite and and socializing with them like that, that just like, like makes everything like even more seemingly corrupt or seemingly like, you know, like this is a system that is interested in elite reproduction you know, rather rather than its own stated principle of upholding the rule of law. So I, I actually just think even without like, you know, I don't think you even have to document a quid pro quo and there might not even be one just to say, you know, like, you know, like it's already pre-selected, right? It's, it's pre-selected. We already know to some degree just because of who gets into the courts, but it's even more pre-selected because it's actually the, the people who have within that system are elites who have very personal ties to the wealthiest parts of American society. So, so that, that, I mean, yeah, that also, I mean, to me, like, it's just like, it's just obviously bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that point about, like, sort of self-selecting insularity is a really good one. You know, we have two 
sitting Supreme Court justices who not only went to, as as many of them did, these very elite law schools, you know, the court is wildly overproportionate with Harvard and Yale law graduates, and as are their clerks, but two of them went to the same high school. Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh both went to the very exclusive, very expensive, all-male Georgetown Prep, a high school where, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was a student when he famously, allegedly sexually assaulted Christine Blasey Ford. And, you know, they're, they are Nepo babies. Both of their mothers were very powerful political figures. Brett Kavanaugh's mom was a judge and Neil Gorsuch's mother famously was the head of the EPA under Reagan, who got pushed out of the Reagan administration for being too conservative. <laughs> you know, these are these are people who not only do they come from power, in many cases, they have never actually been exposed to people not from power. I think one very telling exception is Clarence Thomas, who legitimately does come from like pretty abject poverty. You know, the guy grew up in rural Georgia and South Carolina. His first language was Gullah, which is a sort of rural language spoken by African-Americans that has sort of grammatical and, and you know, grammatical and, and vocabulary roots from West African languages spoken by enslaved people. And he was raised largely by his grandfather, who lifted himself out of poverty and became a member of, you know, what is now the Trump-based, sort of the bourgeois business owner elite. I believe the grandfather was a landlord. And, you know, has this great respect for wealth, even though, and, and, and quite vicious contempt for the poor, including his own sister in some of his writings, even though he has experienced poverty himself. And, you know, there's a, there was a interesting interview I heard from Corey Robin, a historian who wrote a intellectual biography of Clarence Thomas. And Robin was making the case that Thomas and, and some of his allies on the court don't just understand corruption is sort of not a big deal and don't merely see it as a lot of you know corrupt people do as sort of a reasonable interaction with friends and peers he very much understands individual liberty as mandating this outsized respect for the prerogatives of wealth in ways that are like not necessarily actually compatible with democracy you know so another issue sort of straining at the ethical problems on the court is that some of these justices are extremists for the ability of money <laughs> to, to do what it wants to do. And they don't particularly think that the ethical guidelines that were instituted after, you know, Watergate, for example, are constitutional. <laughs> like, you know, there's oh, yeah. part of the reason they're not reporting is because they think that it's not part in part, they are trying to conceal the extent of their connections to these ultra wealthy people, but they also think that it's illegal for the for them yeah, to be yeah, required yeah. To, to disclose. Yeah, yeah, no, and in some ways, I mean, this gets at, like, you know, I think what's a false debate, like, yeah, you know, like, is Clarence Thomas sincerely coming to these decisions? Or, you know, like, is he, you know, corruptly, you know, financially benefiting from it and coming to these decisions? Like, to me, the it doesn't matter the sincerity if the sincerity is his conviction that, you know, wealth should dominate. Like, that, 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 that is, you know, he's sincerely coming to the corrupt, the, 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 the conclusion that his corruption doesn't matter, that this is actually the natural order of things. 
And so, yeah, it's it just like the two go hand in hand. Like it just, you don't have to make a choice between whether he's corrupt or he's sincere. He's, he's both. <laughs> but in, in any case, and we, we, we should also add, I, I think in the sort of catalog of his corruption, I just want to briefly say that the Harlan Crow also bought the home of Clarence Thomas's mother, which Thomas had been a part owner of, had, pay, had paid property tax on. And is now, and not only the home, but also other lots in that neighborhood and, and fix the neighborhood. And, you know, like I have to say, like, if someone did that for my mom, you know, like I would feel a certain amount of debt to them. Uh, so it's, it's hard to know how one could pretend this is no big deal. But in, in any case, all of this adds up to, you know, this is not the only source of the legitimacy crisis in the courts. You know, there's also people don't like a lot of the decisions the courts are making. But it's certainly the case that it's a factor and one sees in a you know, public opinion poll, I think, you know, like trust in the courts as the Supreme Court is like sort of at a historical low, at least as long as people have done measurements of it. And that goes back, you know, like many decades. It's never been this low. It's getting lower. We know that, you know, Justice Roberts and others are worried about this. And they kind of have taken the sort of blaming the messenger that they, you know, uh, you know, if people weren't as critical of us as they are, <laughs> you know, the courts wouldn't be in trouble. But uh, yeah, I mean, what, what, where do you think like this sort of, you know, growing public's distrust of the courts is coming from? Yeah, this is a, you're alluding to a statement that was made by Sam Alito in a kind of bizarre interview with the Wall Street Journal. It was a Wall Street Journal journalist in conjunction with a like a right-wing movement lawyer <laughs> conducted yeah. this interview for Sam, of Sam Alito a few weeks ago that was published over the weekend. And he said, you know, the reason there's a low approval reading of the Supreme Court is because the Supreme Court is getting bad press. And it's like, okay, we'll follow the chain of causation one more step, Sam. Like, why might the Supreme Court be getting bad press? It's because they're doing these wildly unethical and unpopular things and holding themselves apart and above any accountability. So, you know, definitely the Supreme Court has moved dramatically further to the right than the American public. They have been very successfully captured, along with the rest of the federal judiciary, really, by the Republican Party. There's a disproportionate number of Republican appointees, particularly Trump appointees, because Mitch McConnell, during the Obama administration, refused to give hearings to Obama's federal court nominees and eventually, you know, held open a seat on the Supreme Court after Antonin Scalia dropped dead on a hunting trip, also paid for by a very influential right-wing donor. So, you know, it's, there is a numbers game on the Supreme Court and on the fed lower federal courts and the Republicans won. And that means that, you know, they have these people who are ideologues, who are trained from their 20s to be ideologues, vetted to be incredibly reliable conservative votes and votes for Republican Party priorities. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Who have really no fear of reprisal or of consequence. You know, there's a, often the Supreme Court is contrasted with lower federal courts because the Supreme Court has no binding ethics code and the lower federal courts do. And that's true. And I think it's a, a massive problem. But also the lower federal courts have an ethics code that is, you know, vague, <laughs> insufficient, only rarely belatedly and begrudgingly enforced. And those are also judges with lifetime seats. So the only real constraint on their conduct is what might keep them from or enable them to ascend to a higher judgeship. So, and, and you know, we can also talk about some of the behavior of right-wing judges who now seem to be almost like a competing to be trolls in the, you know, the apparent assumption that that will help them get appointments to circuit seats or to the Supreme Court itself. But, you know, you have this federal judiciary that sort of like has no reason to be afraid, right? And there used to be a sense that people on the court, like John Roberts, were more institutionalists, that they were going to try and pump the brakes. But now you have a 6-3 supermajority on the court, and the Clarence Thomases and Sam Alitos don't need a John Roberts vote, and they can do it without him. And they have largely chosen to do it without him. You know, there's in Thomas's concurrence in the Dobbs decision overruling Roe v. Wade, you know, he made it clear that he had sort of tried to broker a compromise that would have preserved some kind of shell of an abortion right. But his compromise was like, oh, you know, we'll keep Roe technically intact, but we'll get rid of the viability standard result that, you know, Roe really is. So like, you know, even if John Roberts was not as like ostentatiously impotent on the court as he is, I, I don't think we'd be tremendously better off. But you know, you have these guys who are just hitting the gas. Mm -hmm. They are moving very, very far to the right and they don't really have a lot of opportunities to be corrected. Well, okay. Well, I can imagine some listeners are saying at this point, 
But Moira, like this is a system of checks and balances. How can you say that you know like the they can't be held accountable or can't be restrained? You know, like isn't it in the Constitution that it's the Congress and in particular the Senate? You know, both has both the the right and the duty to serve as a check on the courts. Why can't we have some of that? Well, that's a really good question. And my answer would be like, try doing that in the Senate. Part of the reason the courts have been able to become so, you know, powerful, like extra constitutionally powerful and, and have been able to exert so much control over policy is precisely because we have a non-functioning legislative branch. You can't get Congress to pass a policy change and therefore our policy is left to litigation and to the federal courts, right? And that's and to, you know, a lesser extent to executive orders. But like this is the result of partisan gridlock, but it's also the result of, you know, real failures, right? Because like we do have a judiciary committee in the Senate that is nominally supposed to have oversight power over the Supreme Court. And they have been extraordinarily, you know, just like ostentatiously powerless to do so. So after the revelations of the ethics violations and that really extraordinary relationship with Harlan Crow by Clarice Thomas, Dick Durbin, the Democratic chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he's from Illinois, issued a request to John Roberts to come and speak to the Senate committee about the court's ethics problems. And, you know, Dick Durbin was asked why not ask Clarence Thomas to come? You know, Clarence Thomas, probably the guy who has a lot more information about his own relationship with Harlan Crow and its influence on his jurisprudence. And Dick Durbin had this kind of curious answer. He's like, well, Thomas would say no. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> so, you know, you are preemptively conceding your right to you know, have an oversight over Clarence Thomas and to question Clarence Thomas, which is, you know, not just your power, but in, you know, some some might say your constitutional duty because you think he's not going to agree. Mm -hmm. And guess what? John Roberts didn't agree either. <laughs> John Roberts sent this like very brief, curt, it would almost be over glorifying it to call it a letter. It was like a note to the Senate Judiciary Committee saying, no. I don't want to come testify, blah, 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 judicial independence, blah, 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 separation of powers. And, you know, this is an important matter. And in the past, when justices have testified before the court, it's been over trivial things, which makes no sense to me that oversight would only be- For trivial matters and not serious ones. Yeah, exactly. But that was John Roberts' argument. And there, there really wasn't much of an argument. He didn't make a attempt to justify why he should not be subject and his court should not be subject to oversight and to, you know, checks on its power the way the nominally co-equal branches of government are. He just kind of hand waved it off. And, um, you know, that's something he can do because the Senate is weak, because the Judiciary Committee in particular is weak, and because the Democrats are weak. And it's something he can do right now because functionally the Judiciary Committee does not have subpoena power because that would require them to have a working majority of Democrats on that committee. And they don't because Dianne Feinstein is MIA. Yeah. So, so there's like, you know, and we can maybe briefly talk about the Feinstein situation, which I think 
you know, has been much reported on. But I mean, I think that, you know, the mistake is to just like make it an individual thing rather than see it as part of a, you know, like a larger pattern of behavior and a, a part of a larger system. And, you know, like, I think it is fair to say that there's several dynamics at work. One is the Democrats are very deferential towards the courts and very, have an institutionalist view, you know, that the legitimacy of the courts have to be upheld and don't want to be challenging the courts in this way. And they also, and perhaps tied to this deferential view of the courts, you know, tend to have a leadership class that is very old and very institutionalist in orientation. And, and part of the institutionalism is the sort of, you know, respect for the seniority system and, res- you know, like wanting to keep people... In- who have been around for a long time in positions of power. And so I so I think all of this is, I mean, to my mind, it's all connected. Do you sort of see that as a, uh, would you agree with that? Like that this is like a, a larger problem in the sort of democratic leadership classes worldview? Yeah, you know, I do think that things like the failure of the democratic leadership to force the obviously incapable Diane Feinstein to resign so that the business of the Senate may resume is part of sort of the same disease as the party's failure to confront a, an emerging constitutional crisis in these captured courts, right? It is about a deference to existing power, a deference to sort of norms and politeness towards sort of, you know, the delusions and pretexts of others, and also a you know, kind of a sense, I think, still in a lot of the Democratic leadership that, you know, Trumpism is going to go away. You know, they they think like we beat the guy, you know, Trump was an anomaly. Dobbs was an anomaly. Maybe we can like cynically use either or both back to our electoral advantage, but they're not real. And these are actually forces that have really entrenched themselves in these institutions that Democrats are now fighting to preserve. And, you know, you have to be able to confront the institution when the institution has been captured and made a tool of this, like, sort of anti-democratic forces. And that's something that the, you know, Democratic Party leadership has just not been willing to sort of admit to themselves. Yeah, no, that's such an excellent way of, like, thinking about this in terms of, you know, there's just a larger failure to acknowledge the, the crisis. I think it was always my worry during when Trump first became president and there was like, you know, organizing and backlash against them that within the leadership of the Democratic Party, what you saw was a desire for an enchant regime restoration. Like, you know, we'll get rid of Trump and then go back to normal. And to some degree, you know, like the getting rid of Trump part, you know, of course we can all agree that's good. But like, you know, like the degree to which that they're committed to returning to a normal normality that will not actually return and to and be so focused on that normality that they're existing they're ignoring and not being able to even see the radicalism of the courts and of sort of you know the GOP yeah that, that, I mean that, that seems like a huge kind of problem and, and a problem not untied with sort of gerontocracy right like not untied with the sort of age that still exists in the democratic leadership class. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that we have seen also this past week Biden's announcement of his re-election campaign, which has really been reminding me of when he 
entered into the primary race for the 2020 cycle and how he professed in the beginning, like repeatedly and, and, you know, kind of nonsensically that he believed that things could go back to the good old days, that bipartisanship was possible, that he had these honorable men in the Senate on the Republican party with whom he could negotiate. And that, you know, it's almost difficult to imagine what, like to identify like which part of the past he has is like fantasizing about because it's like it's yeah. not the Obama administration when the Republicans shut down the government rather than you know give a like basic legislative like you know just operational victory to a black president it's not the 1990s when Newt Gingrich overtook the Republican party and installed this sort of like long-term dominance of the House of Representatives using some pretty nasty politics. It's not, you know, the 1970s when Nixon captured the white South with like straightforward race baiting, you know, there has always been or had there has long been a strain of anti-democracy mm -hmm. sentiment in the Republican Party, which has flared up and become institutionalized over and over again, and, you know, has now overtaken the institutions of the Republican Party and overtaken the like sort of constitutional bodies that they control. And that's a, so it's an old problem with a, like a new kind of structural foundation and, yeah. and it's a greater threat than it's ever been. And it's not going away without, <laughs> without the Democrats putting up an actual spirited fight. I think there, there's still an idea that the Republicans are just going to snap out of it and start negotiating in good faith again. And I just, I think that you know, we're, we have, we're facing a, like a plausible risk that Kevin McCarthy can't control his caucus and that therefore the United States will default on the national debt. That's like a, a thing that could very like easily happen. And there's almost a sense that like no Democrats need to wake up and confront the reality. We can't just keep having our heads in the sand for so long. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, in terms of, I mean, it's a more acute crisis precisely because the Republicans realize how unpopular their agenda is. And so they're really entrenched in these non-democratic institutions like the courts to try to carry out as much as they can and to move away from democracy, even in terms of presidential elections, to you know have a strategy of winning the White House, not just by losing the popular vote, but by, you know, sort of commandeering local elections in swing states. So it's a very, I mean, it's a very acute crisis. And then, you know, Biden, I mean, where's nostalgia? I mean, I've always been struck by the fact that, you know, the way some people, you know, in their 70s will remember, you know, all the baseball players that they that they collected cards from when they were teens, you know, Biden will suddenly, you know, start, his eyes will glimmer and he will start talking about all the segregationist senators that he met when in the seventies and you know like you know like not just Storm Thurman but like you know second third tier guys you know who white supremacists but he could somehow you know finagle them to vote for you know the Americans for Disability Act or whatever and yeah but I mean I think he's remembering a, a little bit more functional American government where you did have you know some Republicans and Democrats voting together and even some very bad people occasionally voting for good laws. But I mean, like, that's a very thin read to like base a political policy on, a political plot program on. And it's also like, yeah, as you say, not in, in keeping with anything that we know about, you know, where the Republican Party is right now. So, but that, I mean, I mean, that might be the sort of place to end it with. I mean, the, the two twin problems are, you know, corrupt, seemingly corrupt, but, you know, like very, you know, like 
court that's, you know, like really skirting on conf- a lot of conflicts of interest and is also very radical and Democratic Party that still lacks the leadership to have this sort of confrontation. Then maybe the only thing I'll end it on is uh, I don't actually think that that this status quo can last forever. And, you know, you're, you're, the constitutional crisis that you've said that is sort of forming, that's going to like force, you know, people to pick sides. But yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're right. And I hope people pick the right side. <laughs> that's right. No, that's a good note to end on. So once again, I'm very grateful for Mara, Mara Donegan for being on the podcast. You know, like, as always, like, you have like very, you know, radical uh, thinking in the best sense of the term of like really getting at the root issues that uh, confront us. Thanks, Jeet. <laughs>